1: Welcome, 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 my friend, to another episode of the Chasing Poker Greatness podcast. As always, this is your host, the founder of ChasingPokerGreatness.com, Brad Wilson. And today's guest on the show is the always thoughtful and contemplative master of live poker tells, Zach Elwood. Zach's a former professional poker player, podcaster, and author who's also doubled as a poker tells consultant for two WSOP main event final table combatants. His books, Reading Poker Tells, Verbal Poker Tells, and Exploiting Poker Tells, have been called invaluable, transformational, and required reading for live poker. In the same social psychology vein as his poker books, Zach's also recently been investigating the impact of social media in amplifying our divides and increasing polarization, which you're about to learn all about. Spoiler alert, it's not your imagination. 50% of the time, poker Twitter sucks every time. In today's conversation with Zach Elwood, you're going to learn how to honestly appraise your skills and abilities, why being a Jack or Jane of all trades can only help you out in your poker journey, what you ought to do when you inevitably make a blunder on the green felt, and much, much more. So without any further ado, I bring to you the always brilliant and insightful longtime poker pro and influential poker author, Zach Elwood. Mr. Elwood, good morning, sir. How are you doing?
0: Hey, Brad. How are you doing? Thanks for having me.
1: It's my pleasure. It, it's been a while. It's been a long while, if you consider how the last year has gone. And so, I guess we'll start there. How has the last year been for you, sir?
0: Oh, good. Uh, you know, I definitely feel on the the luckier side of things. You know, um, with everybody many people struggling out there. I definitely feel like I was on the the luckier side of that aspect. So I have no complaints in that area, but yeah, it's, uh, as for everybody, I'm sure the uh, distancing has been tough and not seeing people and not going anywhere. But yeah, I, I, I got no major complaints and hope you're doing good in that area as well.
1: Yeah. I, I don't have any complaints. I mean, being an online poker player, pretty flexible as to where I can do business. So that's been pretty fortunate this year. Uh, so what have you been up to during the pandemic? What have you been working on?
0: Well, I have, uh, I actually have a full-time job. So I work for, uh, I don't like to say the name just because I do the, some of those investigations and, and stuff, but, um, you know, private things I do. But uh, I work for a software company and do uh, technical writing for them. So in that regard, I, I felt lucky because I've been out of the you know poker scene for a while. Um, so I don't play, you know, I don't play online or anything. So doing that and, um, and then also working on some, some personal projects, like I, you know, worked on the, the podcast, the psychology podcast, and then, um, also working on, I don't know if you saw that I worked on some social media polarization stuff, like how social media affects us. And I spent, you know, I actually took a few, few weeks off work to work on this, um, project researching and writing this piece about how social media may be amplifying our divides and extreme thinking and stuff. And that was a big uh, passion project for me.
1: Well, tell me, what what, what did your research yield? What, what What's the final result for the listener?
0: Well, um, if you want to check it out, it's on uh, it's on Medium. It's like a apokerplayer.medium.com or just search Zach Elwood Medium. But it, And it's called How Social Media Divides Us. Uh, and, and basically, the reason... I was interested in that is because I just kept seeing, um, you know, indicators that people I knew and, and uh, on social media and friends and family were having increasingly like illogical dots and like extreme, like us versus them thinking, you know, and the way they spoke. And so I, w- I want to dig into that. And I also had, you know, I, what, what began it was I had noticed a study from the fifties, which seemed really relevant to me that people who, write things down even secretly to themselves but especially if they write things down that other people see are are more stubborn about those views they cling to them more tightly and that seemed really relevant to me to social media and i you know i I sent that to john height on twitter who writes about social media effects he's like real well-known psychologist guy and he retweeted it he didn't know about the study and as far as i know i'm the only person that has made that connection to that specific study and it really rings true um in, in my life, and I can relate to it because it's it's like we all have that you know, we write something down publicly on Facebook or Twitter, and then we're like we have that urge of like defending it when people point out it's wrong or whatever. and uh, so that was one aspect of it and that led into me, you know the fact that I hadn't nobody else apparently made that connection to that study made me want to look into other studies and other effects. Um, so yeah, that that's what led to the piece, basically.
1: That is a really sharp connection and you know i've done a lot of studying on high performers done a lot of studying on mindset and being resilient like as a poker player and basically with self-image it's when you verbalize something when you put it on facebook you are now going to try to live in that image that you have presented publicly that's just mm-hmm. human mm-hmm. nature and i i did not make the connection that when you put the stuff out there on social media, that's part of your identity. And then it affects your thoughts and how you live. That is, that's actually a very, very powerful thing.
0: Yeah. And, and I think we, we focus sometimes on the positive aspects of that, you know, like making goals or, or stating goals publicly. But it's like, I think there's, we're, we're, the negative side of it is we're, we're all in, in a way that's never been done before. Like the fact that social media is, you know, has basically, it, it would be shocking if there weren't major effects for how it's impacted our thought, you know, because this is such a new way to communicate. And in most of human history, you know, our conversations were just like ephemeral, like they would pass away and nobody would think about them again. And you could change your mind easily because you weren't on record, you know, but now we're constantly putting everything we think and say on record and getting peer pressure and, and responses and anger, even, you know, that, that was the other big thing is like looking into the effects of, you know, what are the effects of getting insulted online, you know, which I think plays a big role. It's like, we when we get insulted, it, it can have a radicalizing effect, because we're like, not only are we more likely to stick to our guns, you know, it makes us feel like we, we have a grievance. And now we, we, we build our start to build our identity around like people are attacking me, you know, and I think that happens to a lot of people that I've kind of seen go down the rabbit hole where they, you know, it's like a combination of factors, I think, and but I think insults and, and, and perceived grievances and the feeling that you're under attack, which happens often on social media, all play a role too.
1: Yeah, it's huge. I mean, to me, there's like there's like layers, and this is something that I teach my my private coaching students. We talk about it while they're playing their session. They send me a plain explained video. We review it in the coaching session, and I ask them to verbalize their good decisions and try to keep score whether you make a good size value bet. It's one zero, right? Because as you're verbalizing and giving yourself affirmation for making good decisions, you're more resilient when you make a bad decision because you realize the score is like 13 to one instead of zero to one and that's mm-hmm. just that's just the filter of having a thought and then expressing that thought verbally and when you write it down and share it publicly that's like a whole nother level of commitment to that thought idea or belief
0: yeah and, and relatedly to to that point you know i i think um it's similar to uh, how sometimes I'll I'll be insulted by people on both the right and the left. Like I get kind of hate sometimes from both sides, but I'll I'll have that feeling when that happens of, you know, this, this means something like something horrible is happening to me or something like, but I have to remember sort of like you said, it's like, put, put this in context. It's like, these are just some random people. I don't even know on the internet. It's like back up a second. And similar to to how you have to do with, uh, not being results oriented or not, you know, not, not recent results oriented. It's like, take the big picture and back up a minute and be like, this is not a big deal. Like you, at the end of the day you're just being insulted by a very small percentage of people. And, you know, and there can also be that perception of like, these, these people attacking me represent like a large number of people, but no, they don't, they just represent themselves. You know, it's, it's, you have to back up and think about the the big picture. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, you can give them as much energy or attention as you want. I think that's that is in your control. But we are human beings. Maybe we're not biologically suited for social media anyway. Just totally.
0: yeah, I, think I mean, right. I mean, that, that's my opinion. It's like this is if we're gonna. Sur- I really think it's like almost an existential threat in the way it amplifies group versus group dynamics, and uh, how that might lead to you know more. You know, I, I think. I mean, I've talked to for my podcast. I've talked to political experts and experts on like polarization and, and, uh, you know, how, how things degenerate in countries and have degenerated in many countries. And, you know, they many people think that social media is playing a role in amplifying these things.
1: It must. And the way that the platforms are set up, it's set up as really us against them because of the content that we're shown, right? Like I was messing around on social media just maybe a few months back And I I followed people or I was going down the rabbit hole of looking at tweets from people whose ideology I completely disagree with. And it was almost shocking the amount of people that agreed with the people whose ideology I disagreed with. And it's just something that is totally filtered out from my feed. So like when you encounter somebody that has tons of different beliefs, it's almost jarring because it's like whoa like where did you come from there's people that think like really think that but yeah of course they do it's just the algorithm filters them out and you never see that so people just agree with what you say reinforce what you say the retweets that you see are things that you typically agree with um so it, it in ways it, it's manufactured exponentially you know the the danger is exponentially increased because of the way that the social media platforms themselves work
0: yeah, it's like, and that was the thing. Uh, you know, the the piece I wrote was not in examining inherent effect, effects because I really think there are some inherent effects apart from product choices. But I think the product choices and the algorithms and such add to that. It's like another layer on top of it. But I think the interesting thing too in that area is is like a lot of the the talk you see in that area from like the talking heads on the documentaries about social media. They're always focused on like the product choices. But I, I think there's there. I'm always expecting them to be like there's some inherent things going on here that are regardless of, of product choices. You know, it's the fact that we're all wired together more closely and the fact that our we're basically like a, an organism that has become like even more wired together. And that has good effects in terms of like quick communication, but it also means like, it, it's basically acting like an amphetamine, like, it, you know, the, the bad ideas and the extreme ideas and the us versus them thinking and the polarization, like spread out that much more quicker and amplify. And that's, that's what I see happening. And, I think it's also important too because some people are like, "Well, polarization is good because we're fighting bad people." You know, we the other people are are bad for for these reasons, which you know I, I I'm I'm not gonna you know, I, and I completely agree in the sense that I think Trumpism you know for example represents a, a horrible thing, but I think you know that there's two levels here. It's like the actual issues, which are a lot of people are not that misaligned on like when you actually look at uh, the uh, diversity on actual issues within each political party in the u.s it's like there's a lot of overlaps and not you know less disagreement than people think but then you have like the psychological like us versus them mentality on top of that which becomes more like group dynamic like psychology uh emotional uh polarization than it is like issue polarization you know like I, i i've talked to conservative friends and we have you know on the actual issues like we were able to have like a reasonable discussion on like what are the actual issues? But then it's be, the more it becomes like this us versus them dynamic, the more skewed those things get where like the more extreme views start to take hold, you know, on, on either side.
1: I mean, it, it, it's really the game is the game of power and it's always been that way. And when you pit us against them, especially in a two-party system, it's just a game of let's see – how long both parties can maintain power, push everybody else out so that we just keep in control for as long as possible. And when it's us versus them, there is no alternative option. I mean, you know, there are better, uh, better voting systems that could be implemented Mm -hmm. in the United Mm -hmm. States that help third parties run that make it feel like, you know, your vote isn't just getting thrown away when you vote for a third party, Mm -hmm. but you know, that's sort of, it's all, as somebody who's invested a fair amount of time in marketing and sales over the past year, it feels suspiciously like marketing and sales, watching the the debates, you know, the vice presidential debate, I was watching it and listening to both Kamala Harris and Mike Pence. And what was super interesting to me was just how they would reemphasize talking points and they would have key words that they would just say over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. And I realized that like, they're not speaking to the people who are already on their side because those people are already there. They're speaking to the people who are in the middle. And so they're like both just jamming these keywords and trying to mm-hmm. label one another. And it was just fascinating verbal warfare. And, and, I just I just realized then and there that like oh they're selling they're selling um, mm-hmm. their party and their vision to the people who are on the fence and, and that's really what politics is it's just selling you hear ads uh, you know just we're in Georgia like I'm in Georgia right so we had the you know the dual Senate runoff that decided decided the uh, majority in the Senate and basically. Every piece of media, every song I listened to on the radio, every YouTube video that I watched, I probably heard a thousand ads over the course of that month. I mean, they were just back to back to back to back to back. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's just it's amazing. Like it's just amazing how how much of marketing and salesmanship, the world of politics, really is with the game being kind of rigged to keep both parties there and. Yeah, with regards day, that's to, what they want
0: with regards to i read some i started thinking about how much the you know not an original thought but i started thinking about how much the um our system of voting and, and how it's set up you know uh leads to these um dynamics you know like you said like it's like people people act like these are choices people are are making but at the end of the day i think it's the structural aspects that lead to this Stuff And if you had a different, you know, different, like, what is it ranked voting or whatever, that would be a different system would lead to entirely different outcomes. But the way that it's we're structurally set up leads to this us versus them thing where it's like, it has to be very polarized. And then the polarization continues to increase over time, like we've been increasingly polarized in terms of like senate voting you know since like the the six starting in the 60s like the, it used to be more diverse like the voting uh, across parties and then like starting in like 60s or late 60s it was like you know started drifting apart where it became increasingly dysfunctional and increasingly polarized and i think you know social media is just a, a, another layer on top of that dynamic so yeah it's like these um kind of the uh, i often feel people try to examine like moral failings where it's like these are kind of like I mean humans are humans like we're, we're living in some sort of structure that we've created and that leads to these weird outcomes naturally
1: well I, I mean there's a lot to unpack here right like I don't know how we found ourselves going yeah. down down this road I don't know road.
0: if that's what you want to talk about but
1: I mean it's interesting to me and I hope it's interesting to the listener but just you know the velocity of fake information right it, it spreads at like 10 times the rate of real information mostly because fake information is more fun right it's more
0: catchy it's sometimes more angering like anger is a big spreader of emotion of of information Yeah.
1: yeah and we have the ability now to create deep fakes i mean people can just simulate audio of pretty much anybody like somebody could take my voice and make me say anything on a piece of audio and it sounds exactly like me and it you can't discern whether it's real or not and it's just all of that makes for a very very scary time in my opinion
0: yeah i mean i think we're only getting started i mean you know you add in all this technology and, and new weapons that are going to be created in the next few years and you know man-made diseases i just yeah it's a crazy crazy time to be alive for for, for a few reasons yeah
1: all right, so I will agree 100%, and let's dive into some poker stuff. Um, let's let's start out the poker stuff by asking you, who is your biggest influence in hopping into the world of cards?
0: Oh, for getting into poker? Well, oh, you know, there was this... Uh, I, I was into poker a bit, and then in college, I started getting into it and setting up games and stuff. And there was a, um, I don't know if you know this book, I can't, now I'm having trouble remember the name. It was, let's Google it real quick. It was like Franklin Wallace or something, poker, a guaranteed income for life. You ever heard of that? <laughs> no, but that, that is <laughs> a hell of a title. <laughs> yeah. So it, it was, it's, it's a pretty cheesy bad book. Like this guy was basically like one of those early, you know, this was back in the, in the sixties or something where he had like, he wrote this kind of sensational, over-the-top poker book involving, like, a lot of reads and and, uh, tells and stuff and psychology and, like, him, the the main character. He would do these various things about the main character, like, uh, you know, worming his way into games and, like, psychologically messing with this group of people and, like, get it, you know, all these psychological tricks he would use. Like, I'm going to put a sandwich in the pot, like, late at night, (laughs) late at night when everybody's hungry and make this guy more likely to go for it. You know, it was all these kind of funny, uh, not purposely funny, but it was meant to be, like, a psychological, you know, mastermind. So it was pretty cheesy, you know, and now, now I think about it years later. Um, but it, it was an inspiration in terms of like, he he did actually have some, some cool stuff in there. that was like, Oh, this guy obviously played some, some poker and had some interesting observations, even though he was over the top like he self published and was like putting ads in newspapers, you know, it was this kind of like thing back in the day uh, and made a bunch of money from it apparently. So I, I read that in college. Like I, I, I couldn't even find a book I like printed out, you know pages from it and like this was like 2000 and uh and and his his psychological angles as as over the top that they were you know got me interested in the psychology side of of poker and and the the tell side of poker so that that person was probably a big influence you know as as weird as it was I think it's still a very fun read like I I think I read it again you know a few just a few years ago i think and it, it was still a fun read it was but it was kind of like a uh, it was kind of like a round like reading a rounders version of poker where it was like everything was like kind of over the top but it was still fun you know uh,
1: i mean i could see how those stories would be impactful for you like that's way more impactful than like the theory of poker right just uh, it's very dry and mathematical heavy
0: right exactly and, and you know one of the reasons you know i i was initially interested in poker was the was the psychology side because, you know, I, I, I played chess a bit too, but I like the fact that in poker, you know, you had these hidden variables basically of like things that weren't obvious, you know, and you could, uh, you could, you could do a lot with those hidden variables and that, that was interesting to me versus the dryness of chess. um, You know, but then, you know, of course, back then I, I didn't understand how complex a game poker was strategically and how much there was to the, you know, the the uh you know kind of game theory and, and strategic side when i started out and, and learned to respect that you know as i got into it more but yeah
1: yeah the the game theory is <laughs> a an untamable beast in and of itself and then you just sprinkle in the random and crazy nature of human beings and you got yourself a pretty fun game that stands the test of time
0: yeah that's the great i've always loved poker because it's you could, you know, you could spend your life on it, really, and you're, It's it feels like something like that, where it's like you know, uh, martial arts or anything, where it's like there's so many factors involved, and, and and so many approaches you might take, and so many hidden learnings that it it does it has that interest of like going down the rabbit hole of a very interesting subject. Yeah.
1: So tell me, tell me a story of your favorite poker session ever or most memorable.
0: Oh. Uh, <laughs> Most memorable was probably a very painful one, where I was playing in Albuquerque, where I played live and online when I was playing for a living back in the day, and played in uh, a pot limit Omaha game. I think it was must have been five five ten, I think, and I, uh, you know, I I was in the hand with two people, two other people, and um, I I bluff, I, you know, semi bluff, bluffed on the on the flop and the and the turn. And they both called me. I think I had a, uh, something about it. I just sense weakness from them, you know, whatever it was. And they were, uh, and, and uh, I th- I had a pair of twos, or a pair of deuces in the hole. So I was really bluffing. Like I didn't have, you know, many draws possible or anything. So, and the board was really scary. It was like a bunch of high cards, all kinds of straights possible. And then, so on the river that goes check, check. And I just muck my cards because I'm like, you know, not even thinking in problem and Omaha, I could be good. And of course, for like a multi-thousand, you know, it's like a couple thousand dollar pot or something. Uh, that that would have been good. Pocket deuces, and you know, <laughs> so that was weird. They both had like the exact same cards, like for the for for the same kind of double draw or something. Uh, Oof, it was, that was memorable. And I was kind of on, on tilt for like several days. You know, <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I believe that I, I have uh, somewhat of a similar story. It's probably a little bit even more embarrassing, but it, it was it was not a it was not a massive pot. I believe I was playing five ten. It was like eight or nine hundred dollars. And I got it in with I got it in with sevens. The the flop was like deuce tray tray. I got it in and the dude had ace five and like the turn was a four and the river was a tray and he just tabled his ace five and he's like, I got it straight, but I assume you have a full house. And I just kind of looked at him like, why would I have a full house? Like, and I just mucked my sevens. Uh-huh. And then I looked at the board, I <laughs> saw that the river trip, the tray. I was like, Oh my uh-huh. God. Like uh, it's a thing that takes, it takes some time to get over because it's just so shocking like that. I could have made that mistake more times in my life, but maybe I just never noticed. But this mm-hmm. one I noticed that and stinks. yeah, well, I even had the thought of, why would I have a full Wait, house? What? Like the board's like deuce
0: tray tray four. <laughs> like it was a three bet pot. I don't understand. Um, so the, you know, when you make, that, honestly, like that was the thing. That's the thing I found hardest about poker, like in terms of, it, the thing I found hardest about poker was forgiving myself for stupid mistakes. Like I, those really add up. And I feel like I never had a problem. Like I found the other parts of it, not that stressful, but I think it's maybe just cause I'm like got a perfectionist mentality. I, I really, um, I, I really was hard on myself and, and beat myself up for, for mistakes, you know? And I think that's like the, you know, the under under acknowledged side is the, is the mental game of poker. Cause I don't think people, some people just maybe cause they have alligator blood or don't care about those aspects. Like they, some of that stuff they can't even relate to where it's like beating yourself up and, and not, and then like kind of going on tilt for a long period of time because you're angry at yourself or whatever. Uh, I think a lot of people have those problems and then some people just can't relate to them. And I think I see, you know, people like, Mason Malmuth, like, uh, you know, saying like, oh, there's nothing to the mental psychology side of or or mental game of poker kind of stuff, because it's not like sports. And I'm like, actually, there's a lot of stresses in poker, and they can really mess your brain up, you know,
1: it's, it, it is once you have the theoretical expertise down, or you're playing at a high level, I mean, it's mostly all the mental game of poker. I mean, anybody that's played poker for a moment will realize that your heart rate elevates, your stress levels rise like there is an emotional dump you you win a giant pot it feels one way you lose a giant pot it feels another way and of course your body's going to be stressed out and of course it's going to have an effect on you psychologically
0: because this is the game um yeah i think a lot of people just don't they don't i don't think they realize that that part i mean i think some people just are natural like at you know when you talk about the the crushers at, at poker they're they're, they I think they're. Some of them are naturally well equipped, and these things don't bug them as much. They're just much more non-emotional, you know, and, and can overcome that stuff. I just don't believe it.
1: I, I don't buy it. No. I think that, like, whenever you have somebody competing at the highest of levels, they got there through. A lot of self-torture <laughs> the guy, mm, okay. they, they, yeah. they don't get there by making this making the same mistake multiple times mm-hmm. and with that comes you know just a lot of pushing yourself being extremely extremely difficult on yourself and finding those kind of mistakes unforgivable because they have to be if you're going to play mm. at that level, those kind of mistakes do have to be unforgivable mm. and it, it's really hard to seek that kind of forgiveness in yourself and it's just a thing that like i've tried to I try to do something every now and again I think that the impulse we do in my community we do poker power hour every week and I, I think the impulse of people when they share hands to do hand history reviews is to share the hands that they win or that mm-hmm. they played well when I don't know about them. I've been a professional poker player for 17 years and have always had one of the highest win rates in any pool that I've ever played in. And my database is riddled with regrettable decisions. I mean, Mm. there are just way too many to count. I really can't play a full session without Mm. making a regrettable decision. And I think that people's impulse is not to share those, is to kind of share the ones that turned out well, that went well. And I've just, over time learned it was during a card runners video actually it, i called the river with jack high in a significant size pot playing one knl basically the flop was like 784 i was playing against a whale um i had jack 10 and the turn came a tray and the river came a tray and they jammed the river or they didn't jam actually they bet like everything but 200 dollars um that I had back and I called the river with jack high because basically I had the nut gut shot they were a fish they were repping something that was pretty incredible and they ended up showing deuces right so they accidentally bluffed mm-hmm. and got called by a worse right. hand and I was making a play explained video for card runners and I as soon as the hand went down because I'm doing it live I thought mm, should I just scrap this video Or should I just release it? Because this is kind of a crazy call that I made on the river with Jack high. And ultimately I led, I just said, screw it. I'm just going to release it. And I don't care. And over time, I've learned that putting those mistakes out there or those things that just didn't go perfectly well Mm -hmm. on Twitter, social media, my Slack group, cover the hands in PPH makes me a more resilient poker player because, you know, because of that vulnerability of like, I don't play every hand right. And because I don't play every hand right, I can forgive myself when I make that mistake playing in game. And that's mm-hmm. just so valuable, right? If, if Again, we're let's go back to self-image. When everything you put out there are all the things that went well and all the right decisions you made, mm-hmm. when you make a wrong decision, it's probably going to be a lot more painful and mm-hmm. hard to forgive while you're in the arena.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think um, the fact that poker is so complex and, you know, over the years it's, it's, it's kind of like many pursuits where Dunning Kruger were effect where you realize as time goes on the areas you really don't know, like, you know, there's all these common spots in poker that were like, Oh, it's, they seem like reasonable common spots. And I think I know I'm, I'm fairly confident that these are, you know, that I know the fairly normal good thing to do here, but when you get down to it, like, you know, because we've, we've learned how complex poker is. It's like, I think many of us, even the best players are are often operating in like kind of assumptions of, of the best things. And that's become more clear to me over the years where I'm like, I, you know, I I do all these things when I play that I think are, are good strategies. But when I really think about it, I'm like, is that the best strategy? Like, I mean, there's just a lot of doubt. Like the, the more you, the more you learn about poker, I think the more, the more, awareness you have of these, these gray areas and like other options you could be taking. And I think, uh, yeah, kind of, kind of having a, ex- accepting that you are operating in a lot of times in, in in things that are more complex than they seem. And that, that leads into being more able to forgive yourself in, in terms of like, well, you know, there's only so much I can know. Like I'm never going to know everything about poker or the best approach in every spot. You know, there, there's just like, you're, you're going to make mistakes, you know, the, your whole life and and you have to be able to forgive yourself for
1: that. Yeah. You're not always going to make the correct play against the correct opponent in the correct situation when both of you have the exact mindsets that you have, when there's a metagame going on. I mean, the variables are basically endless. You just can't hold yourself to accountable to playing, make making every decision perfect because nobody does it. And the more resilient poker players are the ones that, can practice that self-forgiveness and with curiosity look at the hand through a lens of what can I learn can I learn something from this because I am 100% behind the belief that you ought to make mistakes playing poker and you ought to make them fairly regularly and they can be mistakes that cost you money but they're cost you money in the short term but make you money in the long term if you're willing to investigate and sort of learn the lesson from those mistakes because we got a lot more poker to play um, throughout the rest of our lives. And one lesson that saves you a couple of stacks down the road
0: is very, very valuable. Yeah. And and kind of to your point, it's like, I've, I have found value in, you know, the, the, the instinct to to beat myself up or get angry at myself is, is valuable in the sense that I'm motivated to not do that again and learn from that moment and be like, what am I going to learn? What did I learn from that? And like break it down and like think about it for hours and you know, that kind of thing. I mean, I think that does help. And then, I don't know. I think there are people though that are, that can do that without the like psychological pain. Like, I don't know. I feel like I'm on the more sensitive side of that stuff. And I feel like some people are like, I'm just going to, I'm going to, I'm going to do that work, but not feel like bad about it. You know, I don't know. That's, I don't really know. Cause I'm sure it's a spectrum of, of stuff, but um, yeah.
1: I don't know. I just, I just, we're human beings. We're all born with emotion and I don't want to meet a poker player that can just turn their emotions off while they play poker because they're almost like not a human being at that point. Right. Like <laughs> I don't, I don't think we have the capability of just switching off bad feelings, you know, like a light switch. Right. Um, I, I would have
0: liked to, I would like to study, see uh, Patrick Antonius's like um readout for like his um, heartbeat and um, you know, skin conductivity, you know, test and stuff like see how, cause he always seemed like somewhere just like, dead coal and nothing affected him but i'm sure you know maybe he's maybe he gets irritated as much as anybody
1: no so surprisingly zach i believe last year not last year because there was no wsop last year but like two years ago patrick released like an instagram video he had busted all the money he had brought from from wherever he lives and to the wsop to vegas he had busted it and he was actually it was a very vulnerable video and he was quite upset about, mm-hmm. about going through the whole summer, building it up and then losing it right at the end. So even somebody like Patrick Anton- Antonius, like he does get affected. Right. I, I think that, I think that those type of players, again, we talk about self image. They don't really put it out there when they do get affected. They keep it to themselves. They don't talk about it. Mm-hmm. They just try to put on the front that like nothing ever affects them, but I just don't buy it because mm-hmm. I, I've talked to so many of these guys and they're thoughtful, emotional <laughs> human beings. And right. the reality is like it's just going to affect you.
0: Yeah, and I guess it helped back then that some of those guys were getting cushy uh, deals with the, um, the, the 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 online poker sites and were rolling in dough. That probably helped them relax a little bit too.
1: Yeah, it probably doesn't hurt when you know you've got <laughs> a few hundred thousand coming in at the end of every month. Yeah.
0: Take a take a loan from Fultel or whatever they were doing. Yeah, just <laughs>
1: cash advance.
0: Um, Not to say Patrick Antonius was doing that, but...
1: Yeah, I mean, basically when there was a, a lot more money in poker pre-Black Friday and poker players had various income streams, I mean, they all got paid 1500 an hour to film high-stakes poker, which really doesn't seem like that much when I think back on it, just from like a production standpoint. It feels like they, they still got underpaid. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But... Yeah, they're making money from a lot of different sources. And yeah, those were
0: the, the golden days of of poker for sure for for, um, for poker celebrities. now. Yeah. absolutely. In a world where a fish dog bets the flop and you don't know what to do, one man,
1: Coach Brad Wilson,
0: has a surefire plan
1: to neutralize flop leads and rip that dunk. To shreds. Nuffle. Available now. Go to slash nuffle. Rated R. So, John, you've used neutralized flop leads in the past 24 hours, correct?
2: Yeah, so, I got the, basically the slide with all the info on it on Friday evening and yesterday I played a session of one uh, KNL on Ignition and played one particular pot that i remember where a fish just donks flop turn river into me and i ended up winning with a hand that i would have folded before looking at the slide but i ended up winning like a 400 pot instead and the course is 99 dollars, so <laughs> definitely paid for itself very very quickly and i think that'll be the case for even people that aren't playing as big as 510 no limit like i think this is a course that will very, very quickly pay for itself given how how much more donking there is at lower stakes. And I think one of the most common questions I see asked in the Greatness Village Slack group is what do donks mean? How do I deal with donk bets? I, I think that's got to be like in the top three most frequently asked questions. You you ought
1: to feel very excited when somebody donks into you because some good things are about to happen.
2: You said like you probably don't need anyone to teach the course or like you can just look at the slide and, and learn all in for yourself. I feel like you, you Brad will have to be there because i am i'm almost sure sure that anybody who looks at the slide won't believe it looking at what they're supposed to do and we'll have to confirm with you that like you didn't make a massive typo somewhere and that this is actually what they're supposed to do because it's pretty shocking the optimal way to deal with fish donking into you on the floppers
1: if you'd like to check out neutralize flop leads so that you're never again confused when a fish leads into you in a single raised pot head to ChasingPokerGreatness.com slash nuffle. That's ChasingPokerGreatness.com slash N-U-F-F-L-E. And now, back to the show. Could you tell me a poker lesson you've learned from a dark teacher? So, bad experience, something like that.
0: Oh, yeah. Well, probably one probably one story was when I went to, um, I went to casino Arizona and, um, where is that? What's the main Phoenix? Yeah. (laughs) Phoenix. Uh, yeah, I went there and I, I, um, I I was going to go play some higher stakes stuff, like some, some limit games there. And I thought I was hot shit. This was back in, you know, um, my early days of, of playing in like 2006 or something, 2005. And, uh I was like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go play some, some thirty sixty forty eighty or something limit games, and um, then I just got crushed though really quickly. It was like Patrick Antonius losing his world, <laughs> the world series. I was like, I just got, I, I, I was real nervous too. Like I was like playing really badly and wasn't used to playing at, at those kind of stakes and went through a bunch of money. And I was like, kind of regrouped. I was like, yeah, I, I, I think I gotta re. Reexamine my estimates of my own skill and mental you know me- mental uh confidence and stuff like that, so that was like a tail between the legs moment that gave me some humility and um, you know set me up for for doing better later
1: yeah tell me what what did it set you up for the next time that you decided to move up or play a bigger game?
0: I think it just you know it you got to have humility and, and in poker, because you have to have an honest appraisal of your your um, abilities in the big scheme of things, and honestly appraise like, hey, I'm, uh, maybe I'm not the best player at the table, and these guys seem quite confident. And what are they doing well that maybe I could learn something from, you know? And at the time, I was kind of cocky because I was coming from Albuquerque, where there was like no good competition, and you know everybody sucked, and um, I thought I was I thought I was hot shit, and so that was like kind of a a wake up moment where I was like, Oh, like I, I gotta, I should think more about the game. And I, and I've seen, uh, you know, I had friends that um, I think weren't as, you know, it, it's tough to be honest with yourself in, in that regard. in that regard. And it's tough to say, maybe I suck basically, and need to do a lot of work. And I think I, I had friends that, and acquaintances that went through a hard time psychologically and financially because of, I don't think they were as, they weren't, able to do that and they weren't able to say hey i'm playing online against some you know increasingly tough competition and i need, need to examine how i'm doing you know and, and think about my game and is my have i really thought through my game very well or have i just been coasting on the fact that everybody sucks so back then you know so that, i think that's a that that humility is necessary and, and honestly i think it's it's tougher than people know like the the psychological stresses of, of being like of going from feeling like you're on top of the world to being like, hey, I'm maybe I'm nothing really and I need to think more about this area. And it's 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 humbling and it can be psychologically painful for people.
1: Oh, it can be psychologically devastating. Yeah. And it's something that people can avoid facing the truth and just kind of take the ostrich approach of bury their head in the sand and assume that, you know, they're running bad or they have, you know, a million different factors to blame that are all pointing outwards without anything pointing inwards as to their approach to playing poker and you know i hear a common sentiment out there in the world about poker training specifically that people will say that poker training is cost prohibitive it's too expensive and it always makes me laugh a little to myself that somebody anybody who understands the pot odds model of poker and poker training Uh, will see that you really can't price poker training too high because you know if it's $200 you're paying $200 and for the pot odds model basically if it does what it says it's going to do it will 50x that so pot odds say call pot Mm -hmm. odds say to invest into this Um, all of these different things so that you can learn or try to take one concept, apply it to your poker game and it just improves you or maybe it expedites your learning process, right? Maybe it shaves Mm -hmm. three years off um, your poker journey and you get to where you want three years earlier. I mean, what is that worth? Uh, Hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. So Mm -hmm. really it's just, it's a framing, right? It's saying, okay, I'm going to trust something. I'm going to invest this money into my poker education because that's what it is. And the reality is in life, you always invest into any form of education. It, it costs lots of money, way more money um, going to traditional colleges to earn a skill set that is worth way less money at the end of the day. Um, so anyway, that's my mm-hmm. little rant on like poker training and just the industry as a whole is like – when you understand pot odds, you ought to invest in these things. You ought to invest mm-hmm. in yourself and to your friends that struggled back in the day. That's a it's a hard thing. But like when you really think about the amount of money that's on the line, it, it becomes a no-brainer of like, let's seek outside help. Let somebody right. give me their opinion, an expert opinion on how I'm doing that can judge me without bias and just give me that feedback. Because sometimes that's the thing that you need. That's the catalyst that propels you forward, and you know, you just have one of those come to Jesus talks, and you're like, okay, I, I got to do better.
0: Yeah, I think it's it's related to how the toughness of poker, in the sense that with poker, it's so easy for people to be be delusional about their so their own skill set because often the, you know the, the sample sizes can be small and they can people can do well in the beginning and, and do badly later i think it, and it sets them up to feel like that some people don't feel like they don't need help because they feel like they're special they're they're, they're like really skilled you know that everybody's got this a lot of people have that ego uh thing and that's that can be hard to overcome you know and and yeah and, and i know people that you know they should never have been playing in these games online back in the day as the games got tougher and they couldn't face the fact that they out class basically and they were like they you know people still believe it was rigged or or whatever they believe you know like it's it, and it's tough to 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 face the, those facts and i think getting outside help getting training getting you know input from better players than you or just as good players as you is is key to uh is part of overcoming the the ego part of things and saying yeah i need i need to think about these things more objectively
1: Absolutely. The rigged thing, you know, that's just, again, pointing a finger at anything other than yourself. Yeah. Um, Good friend of mine who's been a professional poker player for years used to have a saying when somebody would call a site rigged, he would say, well, good for me then because every site I've ever played on has been rigged in my favor. So Mm -hmm. it's worked out for me. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. And if, if you're listening in the audience and you tend to blame factors that are not yourself take a hard look in the mirror because really that's the one thing you can control is your own development and if you're just blaming everybody else then well you're probably not going to develop much all right so back in the day when you were grinding what would you consider a weakness that you had related to your poker game and then what steps did you regularly take to overcome that weakness?
0: Oh, well, I think I was I think I was uh too aggressive for one thing. I, I, I that was a big weakness on my part and I think it came from reading a lot of you know, some books and and maybe some you know, pop culture kind of stuff that made it seem like aggression was really uh you know where to be like Doyle Bronson's super system which made it sound like you're always like hammering people and stuff and I think that I was kind of in that mindset for a long time and I think I got away with it I think for a while because the competition was so weak in the early days of the poker boom and such um but I think I had to yeah and I I think that ties into the ego thing too where you're like I'm going to be the most aggressive person at the table and I'm I'm you know I'm I'm a force to be reckoned with but and I think it the, the learning of like, yeah, well, that's, there's nothing inherently good about that. Like you should be adjusting to whatever the, the table is like, even, even if you're being exploitative or whatever, it's, you know, you have to, you have to take a step back and, and be like, what well, I'm, you know, maybe the most money is in taking another approach and just laying low or whatever, you know, just based on whatever the, the game's like. So I think learning that uh, to tone down the aggression was a big uh, factor for me.
1: Well, I mean, you have a spectrum of tools, right? You have, you can check, you can call, you can raise, you can bet. And those tools all have utility. Checking has a utility. Calling has a utility. So, you know, like you said, pop culture in poker back then was always be folding or raising and don't be doing (laughs) much calling, right? And Calling is weak. Calling is weak, and that's like one of the most damaging oversimplifications of poker that probably exists in the world because, of course, there are times where calling is the only appropriate option. And, and just like but, checking
0: is is quite appropriate sometimes. And, exactly.
1: Yeah. Like yeah. there are times where checking is totally appropriate and yeah. calling is appropriate. And mm-hmm. you just have to learn how to use those different okay. tools. And yeah, maybe that makes poker a little bit more difficult because you have to add some subtlety to your game or some nuance. Um, but guess what? Poker is a difficult game. <laughs> You're not going to be able to win a poker if you just you know, eject multiple tools from your, your tool belt because you don't know how to use them. Um, this game in, in this day and age, you're you're not going to be able to beat poker if you choose to go about it in that way.
0: And I think it also, it was added to my problems that I was, you know, being always interested in the psychology and tells side of things from early on, I, I could always justify my aggression because I'll be like, well, I'm going to, I'm going to maybe learn something from how he reacts to this bet. And so that kind of made me more likely to, to bet too. you know, and, so those were all, it was all tied together. I'm like, I had to learn to, you know, take a more, take a calmer, more objective approach and not try to be the the boss of the table or whatever.
1: What, what's funny is psychologically speaking, you know, there's things that happen psychologically when like a short stack gets committed to a pot, right? Like I, I preach in my private coaching sessions and on Poker Power Hour about sunk cost fallacy. And if an opponent has like half their stack committed and they're a short stack, they're likely to take aggressive actions because the pot is meaningful to them. They've sunk half their stack in the middle. And, you know, say it's a three bet pot, there's 200 in the middle, and the flop is like 10, 9, 4, and you have aces. Well, checking is going to almost always be the best play there against a short stack with SPR of around one. Because they're just going to pile with whatever they have because they need to win that pot, psychologically mm-hmm. speaking, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, you know, that that's sort of, a, again, a funny misnomer that psychology only is in effect when you're aggressive, when the other mm-hmm. player's on the receiving end of aggression. Because also, when you feign weakness and check, psychologically, psych, psych, psychology comes into effect there as well, right?
0: Mm hmm. Mm-hmm yeah for sure yeah there's it's it's a factor yeah in, in so many so many spots
1: yeah most mostly most
0: all the spots I think
1: yeah. <laughs> against uh weaker competition psychology's in play in pretty much
0: every single spot that you get in against them right because it's yeah even if we talk about how complex and, and nuanced the you know the game theory side of things is most of the time you're playing exploitatively against Weaker competition. I mean, especially live, and, and and not so much probably online. But usually, when you're playing weak players live, you're you're aiming for exploitative things based on you know a little bit on their patterns. Their, patterns, yeah.
1: We're finding patterns. You know, mm-hmm. it, it, it's not just pure randomness. Human beings are patternistic creatures, and they will do things subconsciously: betting patterns, timing tells, just whatever it is. They exist. If you're willing to dive deep and look for them what do you think is a common assumption people make about their poker careers they should spend some more time thinking about
0: i don't know if it's an assumption but i think um it feels like these days people should have backup plans you know um i think uh, i think some younger people it probably is less true these days but i feel like some people think um assume you know the poker poker will whatever they're doing with poker will go on forever but i think it's good to think about the um you know if it doesn't if it's not there um if it, if it dies off for for whatever reason becomes harder think about other plans you have you know maybe that means like you know te- if you're playing poker you're teaching yourself to code or something in the, in, the, in your off hours or something to to have a backup plan if if things aren't there i think that's true of like Probably any pursuit, you should always have some sort of backup plan.
1: Yeah, we, those redundancies in the world of poker are very, very valuable. And like, even if you're in full on poker mode, you know, you said, you mentioned poker just like as a whole, if it is not viable. And I don't think that's going to be the case, just kind of across the board. I think that like maybe no limit hold on cash online has a demise, but. There's always tournaments, you know, there's always live tournaments, there's always live cash games. I think learning different games, pot limit Omaha, some of the limit games, some of the mixed games, so that if one form of poker dies out, you still have a backup plan. Just even that outside of a brand new skill is Mm -hmm. extremely valuable so that you have options, right? Melissa Burr came on the podcast and was saying that like she wanted to know all the games Because when she walked into any poker room, she wanted to be able to sit down at the most profitable game in the casino, wherever that was, right? And there's a lot of power Mm -hmm. in having those options available to you by, you know, increasing your skill set and venturing out of the world of just, you know, no limit Texas Mm hold'em.
0: That makes sense. Yeah, being flexible, yeah.
1: What are some things in your poker career you wish you said no to more often?
0: Loaning people money. Yeah, I mean... I'd say yeah I was a bit too loose with money when I was doing well you know when things were were going well and you know that that led to problems and I probably wasn't you know there's probably that people that had a lot more worse situations than I did but still it was kind of like distracting and also like hurt some friendships and stuff like that where I could have just not loaned the money and everything would have been fine you know Um, things like that yeah I think that's that can be, that can be tempting whenever for anyone that's doing well in poker. And then there's that temptation sometimes to share the, share the wealth or something But I think it leads to weird outcomes. It's kind of like doing business with your friends and family It can lead to bad outcomes.
1: Yeah. And when you're young and immature and don't have much life experience, it's like, okay, you know, I've got 10 K, and 100 dollar bills in my pocket and somebody asked for 1500 it doesn't seem like that big of a deal and maybe it's not that big of a deal to you actually if you're a successful poker player but the downside is that friendships get affected and when you don't value that money that person's not going to value paying you back you're going to be just the absolute last human being on the planet that they pay back and the downside is that it can cost you friendships and relationships that are more way more valuable than the 1500. So mm-hmm. in my opinion, if that's something that you're inclined to do, just give it away and don't think about it again because otherwise there's a lot of bad things that come after it and you end up typically not getting paid back regardless. Um,
0: yeah. Then it's like people might be, you know, the other angle that is like your friend, your friends, your acquaintances might be broke, and then you feel bad even asking for it back. It's like, oh, okay. I'll just forget about it.
1: Right. Like, you, you know, or something happens, like, especially if you're young and three years pass or something like that, they get married, they have children, you know, they're struggling to survive. They have all of these expenses. And then, you know, do you have this in the back of your mind? Like, oh, they owe me, they owe me 1500. And you're like, Okay, so I can either hold on to this forever, create bad energy in myself, or I can just let it go and pretend like it never happened. And ultimately, I've learned that just letting things go, pretending like it never happened is just the better course of action just for your own sanity. Right. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Because there's a lot of downside in holding on to that, um, those poor feelings.
0: Right. Yeah, for sure. And then, you know, you never know if you, when they're doing well, if they're doing well later, then maybe they'll pay you pay you back then or something.
1: yeah maybe but maybe. maybe not not a thing just again just out of my head like maybe yeah, they do yeah. and that'll that'd be nice but if they don't they don't
0: right exactly yeah no I, yeah. I, I, that's my that's been my approach too. yeah
1: what are some things that you wish you had said yes to more often in your poker career
0: probably uh going over hands with um other poker players you know i, I wish i had of taken, taken my ego out of things earlier on, and, and sought, you know, third party help or, or help from uh, other poker players that were as good at, as or better than me. And uh, why didn't you? I think it was kind of like that ego thing. You know, it, it took me a while to to realize that you know maybe I wasn't the the best. You know, and lower the ego and realize like other people had things to offer. And I think uh, so. I, I wish I had gotten to that point sooner because that would have yeah that would have led to much better outcomes earlier on you know versus taking longer to improve that kind of thing
1: and the reality is you know zach and i'm sure you're aware of this now but for the listener the reality is that it doesn't matter how good you are there are always lessons you can learn from discussing hand histories with other people whether it be The perspective of a player who's operating at a lower level maybe you get an insight into their decision making process that you had never Mm -hmm. noticed before maybe they see an angle that you just skipped over because you you discredit it straight away but maybe you know it's valid or has some merit that you ought to consider nobody's got it all figured out and just because you know you play poker at a higher level than somebody else does not mean that you cannot learn from that person. I think that there's a ton, a wealth of information that you can learn from pretty much everybody that you come in contact with as it relates to poker, whether they're better or worse than you.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. I think, yeah, I would have done more of that. It was probably cause I was a bit antisocial at the time too. And yeah, but I would have taught, would have sought out more, t- more talking about hands. Yeah.
1: Well, Back in back in our day, you had to be pretty social to get involved in those things because, <laughs> it, you know, it wasn't like just joining an online training site community just as easy as that to plug in. It was you got yeah. to actively seek these people out.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I could, there was, you know, there was still like two plus two back then, so I could have like done more of seeking out that kind of thing or just people locally that I played with in, in, in Albuquerque. I was also kind of like sometimes afraid of the perception of like, being in some sort of click with people, like giving the perception that like the, the people at the casino would think like we were, you know, colluding or something like that. I, I was always kind of afraid of that thing too, but I think I was a little bit too afraid of, of that than I should have been. I could, I could have reached out and talked to people and uh, made, made more friends in the poker scene.
1: Yeah, I don't think the casino... I don't, I don't think the casino could, I think they could care less yeah, I know, I know. who you it's, hang out with. What not the the casino,
0: I mean the, 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 pe- the, players of the, oh, the players, Oh, yeah, the players. The, yeah. Yeah.
1: I, I don't think they care either. I yeah, think I don't, I
0: don't think most people care either.
1: There's sort of this unspoken agreement, at least in my mind, how I work is like, we can go outside and we can talk about poker and that's cool. When we sit down in our chairs and we're playing against each other, it's on, And we're both of our jobs is to beat the other person into oblivion. And that's just like the unspoken, unwritten rule of battling against your friends. Like go hard and leave it all on the felt when you stand up and leave, because it's just it's hard poker is hard enough without trying to navigate these sort of relationships while you're playing cards. You know, it's, it's a big enough psychological minefield without that. So just let everybody know, be upfront. Like I'm going to try to bust you when we're playing against each other and I'm Mm -hmm. going to go for the jugular and you, Mm -hmm. I would be, I would be um, disappointed in you if you didn't go for my jugular in the same way.
0: Yeah, for sure. That that should be the, unfortunately I, I have seen, That not happen but oh me too yeah
1: i've seen it not happen many
0: times and yeah it's just uh it gives a i think the worst thing about it is it gives a perception to other players at the table where it's like you've got like three three players that are known you know as being good or whatever pretty pro level and and like two of them are like kind of like taking soft lines to each other that perception is really bad to other people and i'm like what are y'all doing like even just for perception like Play hard, you know. Play your, play hardest as you can versus each other.
1: I think it shows a low poker IQ, to be honest.
0: Yeah, for sure. And um, uh, I, I should say these are these are people that I didn't really respect their, you know, games or professionality or whatever. There was, there's
1: not one poker player that would do such a thing with another pro that that I think is a good player. Like I, I've yeah. never, I've never come across that in the world. Maybe no, it exists somewhere, yeah. but it, it's, it,
0: it, it's insight into their bad thinking. Yeah.
1: Have you ever strongly believed something
0: about poker
1: only to reverse course later on? And if so, what led to that change of belief?
0: Oh, it was probably, you know, one example that with the poker tells angle is thinking that that was, you know, when, when I first started out thinking that that was like a lot of people that get into poker initially, it's that romantic idea of, tells and uh, being a big part of the game that you're getting reads uh, you know constantly or whatever um, or that you will eventually be able to do that and kind of in the the Hollywood version of of poker you know that's a that's a thing Um, but then you know as as you take poker more seriously you realize that's just like a small you know small a small uh, percentage of, of of adding to win rate is is the tells stuff you know and and you're you can you can go a long time without ever you know using that information um, behavioral information for uh, you know even if you're a, a very good reader and I think coming to a more a more realistic understanding of that you know was I think every everybody who a lot of people that get into poker, not online players so much because they're they don't think about that as much, but I think that the more amateur recreational players that start out into poker can have that kind of perception that tells or some big important thing and that leads to them like being afraid of being read, you know, like, Oh, somebody's going to read me, you know? And I had that when I started out, I'm like, Oh, these, these professionals are going to read me. And I, I have to be really careful. And then like, as time went on, I'm like, yeah, most people aren't paying attention to that stuff. And it's even if, even if they were, it's like, they might only occasionally get a read or, or something me, you know? So yeah, that reaching a more realistic, you know, understanding, I think was a big part of it.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's a data point that can influence your decisions when appropriate. Sometimes it's a high-priority data point, and sometimes it's a lower-priority data point. And it's just like anything as it relates to bet sizing, timing tells, um, patterns, data, all the stuff. It's just one part of figuring out what the best – or what you think the best decision you can make in the moment is. Not the end-all, be-all. Uh, not even Phil Hellmuth can look at somebody and read their soul – Without any data points, right they're, the line they took, the bet sizings that they make, historical information, all of that plays a larger role or just as large of a role when Phil Hellmuth makes his decisions as their physical body language and how they're carrying mm-hmm. themselves um, mm-hmm. and that's just the reality of all poker all every poker pro that I've met it's a it's a data point. Sometimes right. it's ultra valuable. Sometimes the whole massive pot can hinge on that one data point. And most of the time most it doesn't.
0: Time yeah, exactly. It's a small, yeah. I mean, it, honestly, that's like probably one of the main benefits people get out of reading my stuff is like putting in a more realistic connotation, you know, a context where like I actually went back and edited my first book because I realized I didn't make it clear enough in the intro. Like, look, you're not going to be using this very often. Like I think that was one of the things I realized people were not understanding, I was like, I tried to communicate it, but I didn't do it strongly enough. And I actually went back and did a revision where I was like, look, you might, you know, even if you're the best reader, you might only, you know, rely on a behavioral thing, like a couple of times a session. And it might even be just a small thing where it makes you like slightly more likely to call pre-flop, you know, on a, on a, a standard rate something, you know, it, it's like, so I wanted to give that perception. I'm like, sure. There might be people that are, that I don't know about, like Phil Ivy that are, always you know using this a lot but to the best of my knowledge talking to strong players it's it's something you occasionally use and and, and the worse your competition is the the more likely you are to use it but it, you know when you start playing decent competition it becomes less and less likely and i think people is appreciated having that realistic setting at the beginning where it's like look you're, you're not going to be like getting reads left and right like that is not a realistic thing
1: it's kind of like having a fire extinguisher in your house, right? It's not always valuable, but when you need it, <laughs> it can be extremely, extremely valuable, right? For those times when a decision might hinge on a physical read, that might be the thing that tips the scale one way or the other. When you need it, it is extremely, extremely valuable.
0: Yeah, I think uh, it, <laughs> there's just so many spots I've seen in televised Foger big spots where it was like completely obvious from tells from behavior that somebody had a huge hand and then another, a skilled player just still called. And I was like, yeah, even if that, even if that, even if you were only going to use tells for those big, those obvious spots, like that would be such a, a big, you know, a a big, a decent boost to win rate. And I'm just kind of like, when people say like, Oh, it's not worth worrying about tells. I'm like, I've seen so many, there's so many big hands that happen where it's like, come on, it's, it's so clear what this guy has.
1: Yeah, it's, it's almost um, dumbfounding to me. Again, looking at the pot odds model, how can somebody who is a, an expert, world-class in their field say, like, I'm not going to invest any energy into learning poker tells. You're, like, You're playing like 50K and 100K high rollers. You're playing giant cash games. How much of an investment is it to read some books yeah, and exactly, yeah. like you know it, it yeah. what does it cost you like i mean on the top end a few thousand dollars okay that seems like a pretty small investment that will pay for itself pretty quickly just in educational value and in those giant giant pots that hinge on being able to identify something like that it, it it's dumbfounding to me why any human being that plays poker at a high level would not invest the time, just because the payoff is so large um, right. when you compare it to the investment.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. So, all
1: right, man. So, just a couple more questions, and we'll wrap up. What's a project you're working on currently that's near and dear to your heart?
0: I have this. I have an idea for a um, TV show that I occasionally work on that I'd like to have more free time to work on. But um, kind of a psychology-based sci-fi drama kind of thing, futuristic kind of thing. Um, So, yeah, I occasionally work on that. Like, I've just got some rough treatments of how the scripts would go. And so, theoretically, I'll flesh those out into, like, more complete things and an arc for the the season or multiple seasons, things like that, and work on some full scripts.
1: You have contacts? in the in the industry to submit those scripts to to maybe actually make this thing happen
0: i have theoretical contacts like nothing like i'm very excited about but i think i have enough contacts where it's like if they liked it they might pass it to somebody else that kind of thing where it might work its way up but um I, I don't know i don't know i don't really know even though i have a video film degree and and have worked on some some movies and stuff um not in any major regard but i I think it's a uh, it's tough to know how the landscape changes, you know, and how you got Netflix and, you know, but on that on that regard, I think it is might be easier than ever because I think all these platforms are like desperate for content, you know, and trying to compete with each other and make original content. So, I don't know. We'll see how it goes.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I saw that Daniel Craig just got over a hundred million dollars for. Uh, from Netflix for the rights to Knives Out two and three, I think oh. they, they paid something around four hundred million total for those two sequels, and that's a lot of money. And it goes to show you, like, that the competition between Disney, Hulu, Netflix, and Amazon is cutthroat to the death, and that's yeah. just makes you know it prioritizes content. It makes it very much in demand, and they're willing to pay a premium for it. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah. I think um best of luck to you there. I I also ha have a contact if you know oh, cool. if necessary in, yeah, in the future. I'll, I'll keep
0: you in the loop. Yeah. Um, it might be a while. I got it takes a while to do these things.
1: Sure. Sure. But thank you. So final question, man. Where can the chasing poker greatness audience find more about
0: Zachary Elwood on the World Wide Webs? Um probably go to Readingpokertells.com. It has a summary of everything, all my stuff I'm, I'm involved in. And then uh, follow me on Twitter at A Poker Player and check out my podcast. It's just about psychology in general, behavior behavior stuff in general. And that's People Who Read People podcast. There's a link to that from the ReadingPokertells.com site.
1: Awesome, man. And all of this will be in the show page as well for the listener to click through. Thank you very much for your time and energy, Mr. L. Wood. Um, thank you, Brad. Love to have you back on in a year or so, see how screenplay is progressing and what you're getting up to.
0: Oh, now I, now I feel the pressure, but thank you for the pressure. That's good. Pressure's right. good. Thanks, Brad. Same, man. Yeah.
1: Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Chasing Poker Greatness. If you have yet to subscribe to the show, please take a second to do so on Apple Podcasts or wherever your favorite place to listen to podcasts may be. For more content from me, Coach Brad, please visit our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash enhance your edge, and I'll see you next time.